Hey, welcome to Access. John here. What comes to mind when you think of the word church? Be careful how you answer this question because how you answer it will determine whether or not you will find what you're truly looking for in life. In fact, Jesus established his church and set us out to model his behavior so we would find and fulfill our true purpose. And today's message, we're going to see the exact role the church should serve in the outside world. However, before we do that, I would encourage you to pray for truth to be revealed about the function of the church in the world and anticipate an answer. So grab a Bible and turn to John chapter 4, verses 1 through 26, because this message is entitled, Dying of Thirst. Have you ever been thirsty? I mean, really thirsty? You know, it's one of those things about being a parent, I guess... You just don't realize how thirsty a person can get until you. It's time for bed. Uh, my kids tell me all the time. I'm like, hey, it's time for bed. Like, I, I want to drink. I want to drink. I want to drink. I want to drink. And it just reminds me of the joke that I heard about um, a, a, a dad who sent his son to bed, and his son called out from the other room and said, "Dad," and the dad said, "What?" The son says, "Well, I'm really thirsty. Can I have a drink of water?" And the dad says. No, you had your chance to get water. Now it's bedtime. Now go to sleep. And about two minutes later, the son calls out again. Dad! The dad says, what? And the son says, may I please have a drink of water? And the dad says, son, I already told you no, okay? Now if you you ask me again, I'm going to come in there and I'm going to spank you. So no, don't ask again. And about two minutes later, the son calls out again. Dad! And the dad says, what, son? And the son says, when you come in here to spank me, do you think you might bring me a glass of water? Now, that's how you know that you're really thirsty. If you're willing to undergo some punishment just to get a drink of water, yeah, you're thirsty. Well, um, water is important. We all know that. If you don't have water for long enough, you will die. But water actually serves a lot of different purposes in our body. For example, it helps us to um, regulate body temperature. It'll carry nutrients of waste products uh, and waste products throughout the body, and um, it allows metabolic reactions to occur. But did you know that by the time you feel thirsty, your body is already dehydrated? You see, our thirst mechanism, it lags behind our actual level of hydration. In other words, we don't look for a drink of water until we have a deep need for it. And when we go without water long enough, we can grow fatigued, we can develop headaches through the decrease in brain fluid, um, and and it can send us into hypothermia, where we're unable to maintain the correct body temperature. So so water is important. Um, The lack of water can also alter our moods. It can cause us to be short with other people, like, man, what's your problem? It's like, I'm just thirsty. Um, When we go without water for long enough, it'll cause our kidneys to retain water, and we'll use the bathroom less, and our blood will thicken, making it more difficult for our heart to do its job. Now, the longest a person can go without water is supposedly a week, and that's if the weather conditions aren't like a blazing heat that causes a person to sweat. So much like how physical thirst can have negative effects, spiritual thirst can also disrupt our lives. Because when we're spiritually thirsty, we're unable to function the way that we should, the way that God created us to be. Now, um, I don't know if you if you would argue with this. I, I had a, a friend who was an atheist, and and he just didn't believe that spirits existed. He's like, I, I don't believe that a person has a soul. I think that's something that's made up. And so my question for him was like, well, have you ever been just 
in the place where you shouldn't be unhappy. Like, like you're physically full, you've got everything that you wanted, but for some reason you just feel like you're missing something. And he says, sure. And I said, well, don't, don't you think that, that there's something to that? Because let me tell you what I believe. I, I believe that there are times when we're physically full, but for some reason we feel like there should be more to life than this. And, and that is spiritual thirst. It, it'll lead us to depression and negative thinking. Even though everything is going right, for some reason we feel like we're missing something. And it's only when you feel empty that you feel like your life doesn't really have meaning. So you think, I, I should be full, but I'm not. Now this is one thing that Darwinism will never be able to explain. If we were here just by chance or we crawled out of soup, then why do each of us have a deep need for significance and meaning? Because what Scripture teaches us is that that is the yearning for God in our heart and in our life. But here's the the kicker with spiritual thirst. Much like how you don't look for a drink of water when you're physically thirsty until you're already dehydrated, we don't start looking for God until we realize that we have a deep need for Him. And this isn't something we can do by ourselves. God is the one who shows us our deep need. And without God's intervention, we continue to maintain delusions that everything's fine. I'm in in good shape. But we know that something is not right. Something is off. Even though we we, we will lie to ourselves and we'll pretend like everything's okay. Did you know that sometimes we can do things that will even increase our thirst? For example, did you know that the water company Dasani puts potassium chloride in their water? Now, they claim that they they put this in the water to help give it taste, but in reality, it gives a salty metallic aftertaste. Because of the sodium in the water, drinking Dasani will make you more thirsty, and you will buy more of their water. So it's kind of an insidious plan that they have. Oh, yeah, 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 that's just in there for taste. It actually makes you more thirsty. Now, just like how we have to pay attention to what might cause us physical, to be physically thirsty, um, there are also some things that can keep us spiritually thirsty as well. And Jesus addresses several of these things when he made the special trip to talk to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. So what we're going to do is we're going to read John chapter 4, and I'm going to show you what I'm talking about. John chapter 4, just verses 1 through 26. This is what the Bible says. It says, therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John the Baptist, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And he had come to pass through Samaria. And he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. And it was about the sixth hour. Verse 7. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well and drank of it himself, 
and his sons and his cattle. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks the water that I give him shall never thirst, but the water that I give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty, and not have to come all the way out here to draw. And he said to her, Go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now living are living with is not your husband. This you have said truly. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. (coughs) Excuse me. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When the one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we we lift up this passage of scripture to you. And God, we just thank you just for the opportunity to get to read your word. And Father, I just pray that your spiritual truth might communicate to our hearts, might be communicated to our hearts and to our minds. And Father, if there's anything in our hearts and in our lives that we need to turn over to you, Father, I pray that you would would really um, give us the power and the strength to turn those things over to you. And Father that we might not be spiritually thirsty. We love you and just ask God that you just direct us to this message and all these things we say, we, we pray, excuse me, in, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so in this passage, Jesus, you may or may, or may not caught this, he, 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 he addresses three things that are helping to keep the woman at the well spiritually thirsty as she tries to figure out how to deal with her physical thirst. And this is a great message for us as well. For example... Our prejudice can keep us spiritually thirsty. Now, in this passage, the Apostle John says that Jesus passed through Samaria and went to sit at Jacob's well. So when a Jew was traveling from Judea to Galilee, if he had enough time, he would go around Samaria rather than go through it. And the reason why is because tensions were extremely high between Jews and Samaritans. Now, according to the Bible, Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, had a son named Rehoboam. Now, ironically enough, the first thing that Rehoboam did whenever he became Israel's new king when his father died, he, the, the thing that he did was one of the most foolish things that he could have done. He ignored the, the advice of not only his father in the book of Proverbs, who commands him over and over and over and over again to listen to the elders, but he, he ignores the elders and he listens to the whims of his youthful friends, his ignorant youthful friends friends. You see, um, the people came to him and they said, like, you're going to have to lift the workload from us. Your father Solomon was a great man, but he made us work so much that we barely got to live our lives and we're asking you to lift the workload off of us. And by, because he listened to his young friends, King Rehoboam boasted and said, you will feel more weight in my little finger than you did in my father's entire reign. And when he told the people this, it split the nation. Uh, Rehoboam continued to be the king, but only the king in the south. 
It was split from the north, so the north was considered Israel. The south was now considered to be Judah. So Rehoboam ruled over Judah. Jeroboam ruled over Israel. And the kingdom remained to be divided until the conquering of Israel by the Assyrian army roughly 700 years before Christ. So several Jews were taken into captivity, but this was mainly limited to northern Israel. Their daughters were taken by Assyrian men into marriage, and, and they, their children's children's children eventually got to return to Israel, and these people were known as the Samaritans. So not only were the Samaritans hated by the Jews for being half-breeds and, and being not full-blood Jews, they were, they were hated because they were the embodiment of rebellion and division. And maybe even like accused, well, if you guys hadn't split up with us, if you would have just listened to King Rehoboam, then this would have never happened to you and we could have been a united nation. See, these two people groups, they mutually despised one another because of their history. Now, hopefully this helps explain most of the animosity and hostility between these two people groups. It should at least give us some insight on how offensive Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan would have been. Well, what is the significance of Jacob's well? Well, before Jacob dies, he divides his land up among his sons in Genesis chapter 38. And in verse, 30, verse 22, uh, he tells his favorite son, Joseph, I give you one portion more than your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. Now, apparently this land was very, very special to Jacob, probably because he had acquired the land right after he wrestled with God, the pre-incarnate Christ. And so he wanted his son Joseph to have it. And so Jacob set this land aside as special or holy and even constructed a well upon it. Now a well was a symbol of life in the wilderness for obvious reasons. You don't have water for long enough, you will die. So the well was important. But what was particularly interesting about this well is that Jacob unintentionally hit an underground stream so it wasn't just sitting water, it was running or living water that flowed through it. So I hope, hope that helps us give us a little bit of context on what Jesus was talking about here and the imagery that Jesus draws. So Jesus sat at this well and he waited for the woman to arrive in the middle of the day. The Bible tells us the sixth hour, so we know, according to the Jewish timeline, that that's about noon. So, um, when Jesus asks her for a drink of water, notice that he crosses these lines of prejudice, hostility, animosity, this complicated history that these two people groups had. And we know that, that, that Jesus crossed this line, and he crossed the line with this woman because of the way that she responds in verse 9. She says, how is it that you... Being a Jew, ask me for a drink of water since I am a Samaritan woman. In other words, are you out of your mind? Have you been living under a rock? Your people and my people, we don't associate with one another. You're the religious snobs. We're the outcast society and we're happy about it. We don't like you and you don't like us. Let's move on. And furthermore, you're a man. I'm a woman. You shouldn't be talking to me. And if you're a rabbi, you especially wouldn't want to be dealing with a woman like me. Notice, though, how Jesus responds. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. In other words, if you had any idea who it is that you're talking to and what it is that I have to offer, your deep need would be fulfilled. I wouldn't have had to been the one to break through your prejudice. I want you to think of it this way. Like, imagine like walking through a desert for a week. You can only supposedly go without water for a week. So you are about to die. 
Would you care whether it was a Christian or a Muslim that helped bring you some water? I mean, really, would you care? Now, sure, right now you might say, well, I'd rather have a Christian because that doesn't put me in an uncomfortable position. But if you were in a situation where you were about to die, you had a deep physical thirst that your, that your heart was about to shut down because of the lack of water in your body, would you really care? No, you wouldn't. Because when we're in a life, of, life and death situation, as we are without Christ, we don't care where help comes from just as long as it comes. See, prejudice is all about ignorance. Ignorance of our real spiritual needs. Um, ignorant, being ignorant of the spiritual needs of others. Being ignorant of the lifestyle of others or what other people are like. It's saying, I don't like you because you're not like me. But honestly, we don't know that. Maybe somebody's a different color skin. Maybe somebody's from a different culture. Maybe somebody's from a different um, cultural class or, or uh, they have different financial situation. Whatever the reason, we might say, I don't like you because you're not like me. But see, when we're, when we're put into the position where our choice is, hold on my prejudice or die, we don't care where help comes from. We will let go of our prejudice. Um, there was a a man in, in my parents' church growing up, I remember specifically that this guy was extremely racist. Extremely racist. And um, he never had a good thing to say about somebody of a different race. But um, my dad was talking to the man afterwards because the man had a heart attack. And the doctor who helped save his life was a black man. <laughs> See, it doesn't matter um, when you're in a life and death situation, it really doesn't matter. Your prejudices don't matter. They melt away. And so Jesus is trying to show this woman her prejudice and her deep spiritual need. Now, inevitably, when God reveals truth to us, there's a part of our mind that seems to try to hang on to what we, what we know through the shock. And we try to rationalize this truth that, that God has just revealed to us. So, for example, Jesus says, hey, I'd have given you living water. And she says, well, you don't even have anything to draw water with. Why would I ask you for a drink? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Well, is it just so happens, lady? Yes, Jesus is greater than Jacob. But notice that Jesus bypasses her question and goes right back to his point about living water. There is a water that you do not know anything about. Water where you will never thirst again, and it will create a well inside of you that springs up to eternal life. Jesus is showing her that she doesn't have what she truly needs. And so when this woman starts to realize that Jesus does have something that she cannot live without, then she's able to let go of her prejudice. And she says, sir, give me this water. You see, when we're shown our deep spiritual need, our prejudice, it, it fades away. It's that simple. Now you might say, well, I don't have any prejudice. I'm a well-rounded individual, and I'm kind to anyone and everyone. But really, is that really true? I think if you search your heart, you would see that there are certain people groups that you might be prejudiced against. For example, um, I'm, I'm prejudiced against telemarketers, and I always have been. And I didn't even realize it until one day one of my friends, my Christian friends that, that uh, I, I wanted to hang out with more, 
Um, he calls me and and he he pretends to be a telemarker, and I'm just inches away from chewing him out because I mean he is really crossing a lot of boundaries that you're not supposed to cross as a telemarker, and he's just messing with me. He thinks this is hilarious, but I'm getting upset, and I'm about to cuss him out and hang up the phone, and he's like, John, 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 it, it, it's me, Chris, and I feel like such an idiot at this point because I didn't realize. How I I was treating this people group, and I think the reason why is because telemarketers annoy me. I mean, they they, they call me in the middle of dinner. They they want me to buy something. If I really wanted to buy it, I would seek you. You don't have to seek me. Stop trying to sell me stuff. Take no for an answer. No thanks. Stop calling my house. That sort of thing. And so what we do is we lump all the telemarketers together and we say, do not call my house and I'm going to treat you ugly even if you don't deserve it, even if you have something that I might want to buy. You see, that's what prejudice is. It's lumping people together and out of ignorance, we don't know people's situation, that we treat them badly. Furthermore, we don't know whether or not they have a deep spiritual need. We don't know, but we still say, If you're not like me, you need to go somewhere else. I don't want what you're selling. Get out. But when we do this, we are overlooking deep spiritual thirst. And Jesus crosses the lines of prejudice. Maybe it's not a telemarketer for you. Maybe it is somebody that you treat differently. Maybe better or worse. If you treat somebody else better, a people group better, then you're treating everybody else worse and you're prejudiced. Maybe it's maybe it's your own race. Because, you know, I felt that way like, man, white people are stupid. Well, wait a minute, I'm a white person. So, I mean, like, it can happen. But Jesus crosses the lines of prejudice to help show us our deep spiritual thirst. And we, as his followers, must cross those same lines of prejudice as well. So he shows us our prejudice can keep us spiritually thirsty. He shows the woman at the well, but also our pride can keep us thirsty. You see, Jesus had this one right where he wanted. He said, I've got, I've got living water. And, and, and she starts asking for it. You know, she says, okay, I'm thirsty. Let me have this water. All Jesus has to do is close the cell, but that's not what he does. I mean, he could have said to her, okay, well then bow your head and repeat after me. Dear God, I know that I'm a sinner, but Jesus didn't do that. Why? I think it's because Jesus knew how incredibly difficult it is for a person to admit that they are, in fact, a sinner. And I believe he's drawing this truth out, and it's incredibly painful for this woman. It's it's, it's hard for a person to admit that they have a problem. Now, I've watched this dynamic unfold in my own family, and I'm sure probably many of you have as well. You see, family members, certain family members members can become a source of dysfunction. And rather than admit that there's a problem, the rest of us just ignore it and try to walk on eggshells and move on because if we admit that there's a problem, then we're somehow obligated to do something about it. And so we just stick our head in the sand and we just pretend like everything's okay because it's painful to deal with. This is why the first step of of recovery is admitting that you have a problem. So Jesus leans into this woman, if you will, and he says, Hey, you want this living water? Okay, go call your husband and come back. Now notice how she responds. I don't have a husband. 
And so Jesus responds, oh yeah, I know that you don't have a husband. You in fact have been married five times and now you're living with a man who's not your husband. So what you said was true. Why do you think that she responded the way that she did? Why do you think she responded, well, I'm, I've been married five times, and, and that's a long story, Jesus. I'm living with a guy that I'm not married with. Why do you think she just responded, I'm not married? It's because of pride. You see, pride serves a very important role in the life of a broken heart. If, if something is painful, rather than deal with it, we build up walls around it. And those walls, a lot of time, a lot of times, are pride. We think, no, no, I'm good. I'm good. I don't need help. Now, keep in mind that this woman at the well went during the heat of the day to fetch water alone. She was likely branded by her community, and rather than deal with the ugliness of the religious snobs, she she'd rather go during the heat of the day to draw water because she didn't want to be around any of these people. This was probably her life. She was probably lonely all the time. Even though she was married to, a, or she was living with a man she wasn't married to, because it can still happen. Now, in our culture, we might say, "So what? You know, that's not a big deal. Plenty of people live together and they're not married." And and I've even heard people ask the question, "Isn't this just evidence that the Bible is old and out of date?" Well, this passage would would teach us just the opposite. And in fact, no, the Bible is not old and out of date because it has never been in date. It's always clashed with culture. And here is evidence that cohabitating existed even back then. Now, it might not have been as culturally acceptable then as it is now, but that doesn't mean that the Bible is out of date. You see, what happens here is that Jesus is confronting this woman because her life is not in alignment with God's law. This is evidence that Jesus... Just he felt that just because two people lived together, that that did not constitute a marriage. So think about what this woman's emotional state must have been like for just a second. She'd been divorced five times, five times. Now in our culture, we would say, well, you know, what's the common denominator in all those relationships, right? But see, in biblical times, it didn't take two people to get a divorce. In fact, the woman had absolutely no say on over it whatsoever. Only the man was required for divorce. He just had to say, you know what? I want a divorce. And, and all he said, say it three times. And, and it was, it was you know, we're getting a divorce because I want one. So she didn't have a choice over this. So think about what her emotional state must have been like. She'd been divorced five times. In other words, if her husband wanted to divorce her, she didn't have a choice. And then if she wanted to survive... In this culture, women didn't really go out and get jobs in the workplace. They had to be connected to a man somehow. This is why Christ and, and other places in Scripture, we see the, the, apostle, uh, the apostles telling us that it's our responsibility to care for the orphans and the widows. It's because these women were helpless without men. She had been used by men and thrown away over and over and over again. So at this point in her life, she was likely asking the question, what's the point? Why do I even want to go to this charade because men use me and they throw me away? This woman very likely had little dignity left. And so the same thing that happens to us emotionally when we give ourselves away to people today who aren't willing to commit to us was happening to her. And when this happens... 
We put up a front and we develop a sense of pride as if we can forge our own path through the woods. Nobody loves me. Nobody cares about me. So I don't need a single person in the world. I don't need anything or anyone. I'm just fine on my own. But see, the reason we do this is is because it's too painful to recognize that, number one, things aren't right in my heart. And number two, as a result, things aren't right with God. And we grow ashamed. And we run. And we build up more walls. You see, this pride, it stands in the way for us to find nourishment for our our souls. We cannot find spiritual water without Christ. And what's more, Jesus is not afraid to address the parts of our heart that will bring us the most pain. That's why some people just avoid Jesus altogether. They don't want to deal with these difficult parts of their past, but Jesus brings it up. And this this had to be painful for her because she very likely didn't have any self-respect left because of what was done to her. She might have still been heartbroken over the first marriage and it just continued to wash over to the next marriage and to the next marriage and to the next marriage and into the next marriage. This heartache and betrayal. And it was painful. And it was a mark upon her that she would never escape. And so when asked about her husband, it was just easier for her to answer. Well, I don't have a husband. Maybe there was even a little bit of bitterness in her response. But see, that's the beauty of Jesus. He comes not just to bring up these painful parts of our heart. He comes to show us our deep need. He he shows us so that we can see. Not so that he can see, so that we can see our deepest need. And he comes to meet those needs and to restore us. For this woman, love was probably a non-existent term. There is no such thing. If I if love existed, I would have felt it by now. I've been married five times and I've not been loved. And so it was very likely out of reach for her. But you see what's awesome about this is that when Jesus revealed this to her, he was not only saying, oh, I know you're not married and you're not right with God. What he was saying is is that I know who you are. I know where you've been. And I made a special trip to come out here and tell you that it does not matter. Come to me and find living water. Find that love that you have been looking for all your life. All that was left was for this woman's pride to melt away. And she says, oh, okay, I see that you're a prophet. Okay, all right, I see this. You know me. But then she does something that that, that can also, she shows us something that also can keep us spiritually thirsty. And that's our tradition. We don't like change. She says, our fathers used to worship on this mountain, and you people say, what do you mean you people? The Jews, you people say that in Jerusalem is the only place where men ought to worship. 
Now, where was this argument coming from? Well, according to Genesis 33, Jacob built an altar on this mountain, and he referred to as it, it to referred to it as El Elohe Israel, which means the God of Israel. Now, Jacob was establishing a place of worship. It means God is in this place. This is the God of Israel. This is where we worship. This is where my I'm going to worship. My sons are going to worship. The sons of my sons of my sons are going to worship. And we're going to remember all that God had done has done for us. But things didn't go as planned. If you're familiar with scripture, the Israelites were taken into slavery because of a terrible drought. And Egypt put them through harsh conditions until Moses came onto the scene and God commanded Moses to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. See, this place of worship, it had to change because they weren't in that place anymore. And so they wandered in the wilderness after being released from Egypt for 40 years until they settled in the promised land. Their place of worship at that point was the tabernacle until Solomon established the headquarters for worship in Jerusalem. So her question for the Jews was the same question she asked Jesus earlier. Do you think that you're greater than Jacob? But see, what she was asking is, why do things have to change? This is the way we've always done it. Why should we change? Do you remember the Apostle John, He actually three chapters ago in the book of John, he, he says that he who comes first is greater. So actually this woman had a great point. Jacob is greater than Moses. He's greater than Solomon. Why? Because he came first. But see, Jesus is telling her, yeah, that might be true, but Jacob isn't greater than me. Jesus showed this woman that worship wasn't limited to a particular place or a particular time. He says, a time is coming when people will worship me in spirit and in truth. In other words, a time is coming where people will not be uh, identified as worshipers because they meet on a Sunday morning in a special building. Jesus established his church, which is often confused as a place and a time. But the church is a body of believers, and it will always be that. You see, but this woman, like so many others, was allowing her traditions to stand in the way of finding life. You see, there are hundreds of applications that we could apply to this, but let me try to sum it up like this. When we start asking the question, how does church have to be done? Or, or we ask, you know, when does church have to be done? We're asking the wrong questions. What we should be asking is, where is it that the church cannot go? Because we're not bound to a place. We're not bound to a time. As long as we meet and we share conversation and fellowship about God and with God, that is church. And God wants genuine fellowship with us. He wants it so badly, he's willing to bypass our prejudice and our pride and our traditions just to have it. But the question is, yeah, God's willing to do that, but are we? Are we willing to set aside our prejudice, our pride, our traditions to have fellowship with him and fellowship with others? You know what's strangely ironic about the church? It should be the headquarters that set aside pride, prejudice, and tradition. But it's somehow become the, pre the headquarters of prejudice, pride, and tradition. The church in general is guilty of holding people in arm's length and saying, you know, if you're not like me, you need to go somewhere else. If you don't believe what I believe, you need to go somewhere else. I'm not going to have any patience for you to come around and see what I believe the Bible says so you can get out. You can go somewhere else. I don't agree with your practice. And we often come off as hypocrites as if we don't need God anymore and everybody else in the world does. 
We're so prideful about our own sinful conditions that, that, that we, we point out people, other errors in other people's lives and we, we just ignore our own error. And we might even use our tradition as a buffer between ourselves and a broken world because we don't really like the way that the world is turning out. And, and, and we protect the way that we, quote, do things. Maybe something we practiced worked really well in the past. But things change. Now, we in the church don't like that, myself included. God has been showing me some areas that I need to be willing to change as well. That he is not limited to a place or a time. We simply cannot stand back and say, this is the way we've always done it. Because what's important is our mission. What it is we were told to do. Were we told to have a good church service? I don't think so. We were told to make disciples. And you know what? Change is hard. When the world changes, we often cringe at how bad things are getting. But do you know the area in church that is most likely never going to change? How we view outsiders. I recently listened to a sermon by Billy Graham in 1958. 1958. And I tell you, that very same sermon could be preached in our pulpits today and it would be just as applicable. One of the things he said in the sermon was, we are living in our darkest hour. And I started thinking about like, you know, I know why he said that. Because they had just survived survived the time in history when genocide was like. It was prevalent on a grand scale, like like an entire people group was almost killed. And, and our sons and our brothers and our fathers went off to war to fight and died. We live in a dark hour. But you know what? I think things have even gotten even darker since then. You see, because we commit genocide on a grander scale. And people act like it's okay. We try to get our medical insurance to cover it. And we protest it in the streets. You see, unfortunately, as dark as the world is, the world can become a much darker place. Yeah, they were killing children then, but you know what? At least they weren't killing their own children. The world can become a much darker place. That's why it needs the light so badly. But in order for the light to be in the world, we have to drop our prejudice. We have to drop our pride. We have to let go of our traditions and become what we need to be to reach this lost and broken world. We have to change. And before you say, no way, think on this. People who are unwilling to change. Followers of Christ. I say you're not really following if you're not following him into change. But people who are unwilling to change will never be used by God as a catalyst for change in other people's lives. Because when we refuse to change, we simply stay thirsty. And the world around us dies. Of spiritual thirst. 
Jesus came to reveal himself to this woman as the Messiah. And he only did this because he was willing to cross not his prejudice, not his pride, not his tradition, but hers. Our hearts must follow the very same paths. We must cross these lines of ignorance and pride and selfishness and see the deep spiritual needs in the lives of others. And this can only happen when God takes our heart and he, and he shapes it and he folds it and he molds it into the same heart of the psalmist who said in Psalms 42.1, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. We must let go. If we're going to be filled, if our thirst is going to be quenched, if we're going to have this well that springs up to eternal life, We must ask God to show us our need and to seek Him like we seek water. Let's pray. God, we ask You to show us our deep need. Are we prejudiced, God? Are there people that we are prejudiced against and we think, you know what, you don't deserve God? We'd all say, no, 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 God, but you have to reveal that to us. So, God, I ask you to. And if there are, God, as ugly as that and painful as that truth might be, that truth is still truth. Help us to admit that we have a problem, that we have a deep spiritual need. And God, remind us what you did, that you overcame our prejudice and you reached us. And we can do the same. Are we prideful? Is there an area in our hearts where we're in pain? Do we feel like nobody loves us? Do we feel like we're on the outer fringe? Do we feel like we're all alone? You love us, God. And you're going to bring those areas up and you're going to show them to us. And I, I hate that. But I know that you do it not to be ugly. Not to be mean, but to show us the need that you made that special trip out to this woman, a person you normally should not have even associated with. You made a special trip out to get her. And Jesus, you made that same special trip out to get us. Help us to let go of our pride. Give us the psalmist heart. God, do we have traditions that are standing in our way from doing the things that you've called us to do? Help us to see, God, 
that although this world goes through uncomfortable amounts of change, things that might even cause us to cringe, that you're not cringing away. That's why your son died. And Jesus, we know that you defeated death, that you were greater than the world's problems. Help us to love others the way that you love us. Allow us to return the very same favor and go to others who are prejudiced and prideful and stuck in their traditions because they won't come to us. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you for what you've done. And just ask that you continue to do this work and that you carry it on into completion, that we will never be thirsty again, and we thank you for that. And all these things we pray in your name. Amen. Hey, thanks again for listening. We pray that God blessed you through this message and has given you a clear direction for your life. Please remember to download our church app by searching FBC Rungi in Google Play or iTunes. And remember to subscribe to our podcast so that you never miss another message. If you have any questions about today's message, you can contact us via Facebook or Twitter or use our website. Until then, we hope that you share in our vision to help people take root, grow, and bear fruit. And if so, then let's get out there and get to work.